6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 6. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high, I beseech thee, torment me not. That's a shock if you're reading the Gospels, because at this, up to this point, he has not acknowledged his role. And, and that comes later. So the, the, the personage inside this tormented person recognized something beyond the knowledge of the people at that time. In terms of our understanding of demons, they're knowledgeable. This is not something that just some crackpot demented person would say. He had not announced his real role. The fact that they recognized his deity, the Son of God, Most High, I beseech thee, torment me not. Now they know that out of this we learn that they know who he is, they know that they're destined for torment, and they know it's at a very specific time. Verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for often it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he broke the bonds and was driven out of the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many demons are entered into him. Legion is not a thousand, by the way. A Roman legion is 6,000 troops. So when you say, that's the first legion, the second, third, and fourth legions are smaller. It's the way the Romans organized. But I'm just, the point is, a legion is a lot. Huh? The demons in this man ultimately go into a herd of swine. You know how many are in the herd of swine? Mark tells us 2,000. That's a large herd. I used to be bothered, what are they doing raising swine in kosher country? The answer is it's not kosher country. It's on the east of the Jordan. There's a, the Greek cities of the Decapolis. There were five cities that were Gentile. And so it was understandable. In that, in that sense, you know, economically you can understand why there were swine at all being raised. You wouldn't expect that in Judea. There may have been there too to support the Gentile contingency. But the point is this is near the Decapolis, the five cities that uh, were supported this way. So many, and they, they besought him that he, that he would not command them to go out into the abuso. Now, this is one of those passages of the Bible I don't understand. They do beseech him, don't send us back to the pit, which is apparently one of the places he would normally do. If he cast them out, they go back to the abuso, apparently permanently, or not permanently, but anyway, for a long time. And they ask him, please don't do that. Cast us into that herd of swine. The first question is, that gives us some insight. I mean, I'm not sure what you do with that piece of information, but what puzzles me even more is the Lord agrees. He lets them do that. Why does he do that? I don't know. Maybe just to teach us that these things are not euphemisms for psychiatric problems and so forth, you know. I mean, there are people who, who uh, uh, you know, read the Bible and figure, well, those are just idioms of, for things that we now give psychiatric terms for them. The people who say that have never attended an exorcism or they would know better. There was, there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would allow them to enter into them, and he permitted them. Then when the demons out of the man entered into the swine, and the herd went violently down a steep place into the lake, and they were choked. And they that fed them saw what was done. They fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. And he obviously becomes very unpopular because he affected the economy of that range. So anyway, 
uh, and I don't want to make this a whole study of demonology, but I do want to be at least sensitive to the fact that demons seem to be something quite different than what you and I think of as angels. So there are those that make, the, make a big thing of that difference, which raises a bizarre question, where, the, where do the demons come from? If they're not angels, what are they? Where do they come from? And there are all kinds of bizarre ideas that have no scriptural basis that are really built within the, the uh, gaps, if you will, from what we do understand. There are those that believe that there was a pre-Adamite creation that was destroyed and judged, and the demons are the disembodied spirits of that particular creation. There's no, spiritual, there's no scriptural evidence for that. And they place all this hypothesis between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. That's part of the gap theory that gets way out in left field, that I, it, it, it has only one problem, there's no basis for it. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. You can't tell. It's just somebody's idea. But there is apparently some difference between demons and angels. And so in that whole thing, you can, spend, you know, if you've got nothing to talk about over a cup of coffee, a piece of pie at 2 a.m., you can argue about whether demons and angels are the same thing. Now, actually, I personally believe that there's a large hierarchy of all kinds of these creatures. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have the Shirim, the Sirim, the Lilith, uh, the Tissim, and some others. And they're all translated in the Septuagint as demons, but they're different Hebrew words. The Shirim are the mighty ones, and they show up in Deuteronomy 32:17. The Sirim are he goats or satires. They're hairy creatures that are they're worn out, but they're demonic. But they were uh, uh, embodied in legends as the satires and so forth. Then the others have other names, and they have slightly different attributes. But when we speak in the New Testament, principalities and powers and so forth, those are ranks, if you will. And so angels apparently come in different kinds, and it could very well be that the demons are no more than a if you will, a junior disembodied spirit that is part of that rebellion that we read about in Revelation 12. So with all this digression, you say, we now are equipped. Now, incidentally, I don't, this, we've talked about the second view. Item one was, you can't tell about what verse six means in Jude. Item two was, it has to do with the fall of Satan and the angels. Not directly, because I think the fall of Satan and those, and those angels and all of that, number one, are not bound. The ones that Jude are talking about are bound. They're in chains of darkness, right? Reserved unto judgment. Satan is not, at least not yet. That happens at the end of the tribulation before the, the millennium. And what about his angels? They're pretty free to do mischief. Because that's all yet future. So what on earth are we talking about in Jude 7? That leads us to a passage in the Bible that's very, very strange. That's Genesis 6. This is the third view. Genesis chapter 6. We all know about Noah's flood, but I don't think one person in a hundred knows the reason for Noah's flood, except in maybe a very broad sense. Yes, there was wickedness, and the wickedness was very widespread, and God chose to wipe out the known earth at that time, or the whole earth at that time. I don't think there's anything local about the flood, by the way. But Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 has a phrase that scholars sort of wince and squirrel around trying to explain. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much trouble you can get into, how much work you can put on yourself if you decide not to accept what the Bible tells you. You know, um, there are people that spend years of study trying to talk about 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah because they've never read John 12, where John says that, you know, that there was one Isaiah that wrote both parts, etc. And likewise here, their libraries are filled with speculation on what verse 2 means, and yet if you just take it face value, it, uh, it's interesting. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it came to pass when the men began to multiply on the face of uh, the earth, and daughters were born unto them, 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all whom they chose. Now, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. There are those that, and, and very competent scholars, I'm not trying to sell you a view. There are two basic views on this passage. But the commonly held church acceptable view is that the, the sons of God is a reference to believers, generally associated with the line of Seth. The concept that the line of Seth became separate and believers, and the rest were wicked and ungodly, that the daughters of men were, they were what this suggests is intermarriage that was not appropriate. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, that's not what it says. The name Benai Elohim is a term you chose up four times in the Old Testament, and it's always used of angels. A term to a Bible, to, to a Hebrew, is angel. My proof of that is when the Septuagint was translated three centuries before Christ, they translated it as angels. But it even goes deeper than that. Also, the daughters of men are not limited to the non-Sethites. Thirdly, when a believer and unbeliever get married, they don't have monstrous offspring. And what these people give birth to, well, I mean, not generally. What they give birth to are some strange creatures. Verse 3 says, The Lord says, My spirit will not always strive with man, for he, is all, for he also is flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. You bear in mind that longevity is decreasing. So it goes to 120, later becomes three score and ten. But going to verse 4. And there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bore children to them, the same became the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So whatever happened here, the sons of God and the daughters of men gave birth to something unnatural, not normal. Now, the Greek word gigantis was irresistibly transliterated to giants, but that's not what the word comes from. The word giganes, I guess it is, is a word that means um, firstborn. The word Nephilim here described, uh, well, in, in the Hebrew, the Nephilim are the fallen ones, come from the Hebrew word nephal, to fall. So the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men are fallen ones. That only makes sense if you visualize these as angels somehow leaving their appropriate domain and becoming in a mode that can have intercourse with the women. And they give birth to something bizarre, the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim, and we find them before the flood and also after that. We find them in Numbers 13. They happen to be very large, 13 feet long and so forth. We'll come to that in a minute. So the Nephilim are, are strange. And so that suggests that something bizarre is going on here. Now, the first point I guess I want to make is the very, very early church, uh, the Septuagint translators, obviously, in Alexandria, and also um, the early church, Justin, Athenagoras, Cyprian, Eusebius, also Josephus, Philo, Judeus, and, and also the authors of the Apocrypha, the Old Testament Apocryphal books, which aren't inspired, but the authors betray a presumption of this truth. So the, whatever else you say, that was the common belief up until about the four, fourth century. And a guy by the name of Julius Africanus, who was a contemporary of Oregon, 
he introduced this idea of the Sethites, that, that this isn't really the angels, it's really the offspring of Seth, and they intermarried with the, with the uh, other people, and, and that's what gave that common... Uh, there was a, an attack on the church by Celsus and Julian the Prostate that attacked this older classical idea, and Cyril of Alexander, in his reply to them, um, uh, repudiated the orthodox position of the angels and, and so forth. So from about the 4th century through the Middle Ages, this idea of Seth emerged, and you'll find it in a lot of study Bibles and so forth. Um, but it's got some major problems. First of all, there's no indication in the Scripture that the Sethites were distinguished for their piety. There's no exemption of them from the flood that came. Got a real problem with that if they're somehow believers. You follow me? So if they were believers, they perished, um, which is also, I got a problem with that. And of course, the progeny being monstrous is a problem, okay? Now, those of you that want to study the Nephilim, you might, well, we might find that interesting because it says back here, you notice it says, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. Who might that be? The Anakim, the sons of Anak. You know one of them very well. A guy by the name of Goliath. He was a son of Anak. And you may recall the story. It's one of my fun, fun things in the Bible quiz. You know, you got, you got David, and he's the little David who's going to go up against Goliath. We all know the story. Except notice carefully when we read the scripture, he picked up five stones. That's some lack of faith? Only took one, right? What do you need the other four? He had four brothers. Goliath had four brothers. We find that out later in the scripture. And, and David's men later on uh, slew the four brothers. But David was ready for all five. Isn't that great? If you take the trouble, in Deuteronomy 3, verse 11, you discover that their bedstead of one of them was 13 feet long. Gives you some idea of his size. Okay, that's what we really call king's high. And uh, you'll find that in Numbers 13, when the, giant, when the spies spy out the land, the ten that brought reports said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They were terrified because they ran into some of these Anakim. They saw some of the spies spotted them, and they couldn't handle that. Joshua and Caleb said, that's no problem. The Lord's on our side. He's bigger than air. Let's go. But uh, people didn't buy that, and so it cost them about 38 years. Um, why does Israel refer to their second appearance? In Numbers 13, the phrase is the Nephilim, fallen ones. See, there's something about them that harks back to the days when the angels communed, if you will, with the uh, daughters of men. And as you can tell from my presentation of this, I hold to the view personally that uh, there, there was something supernatural going on. And uh, I have some reasons for emphasizing this, but let me go on to something that I haven't found in, in, in most of the commentators that deal with this controversy, mention all the sides of both sides of the questions, but they miss one thing, and that's verse 9 of Genesis 6. Noah found, verse, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? These are the generations of Noah, and Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, the first, there's three things mentioned there. Being a just man, the fact that he walked with God, we can relate to that. He was a just man. That really means justified, but I won't get into that right now. And he walked with God. That's pretty exciting. But what does this mean, perfect in his generations? What that phrase says in the Hebrew is that his genealogy was untarnished. Now, gee, I don't know how to take credit for something like that. If I could come to you and say, gee, my genealogy is untarnished, that sort of implies everybody else is. So I personally believe that one of the things that distinguished Noah is that 
Yes, his father was Lamech, his father was Methuselah, and we'll get into all of that when we talk. We're going to talk later about Enoch, because he comes up later in Jude, and we'll get into that whole exciting scene. There's some really thrilling prophecy already happened before we get to Genesis 6, and I have another excuse to get into that, so we won't do it tonight. But the point is, one of the things about Noah is that he had a clean, unadulterated, untarnished genealogy. Now, that makes no sense to me unless you take countenance of verse 2. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were fair, and took them wise of all whom they chose. Now, this, this presents an antediluvian picture, a picture of life before the flood. That's a bit bizarre. But let me mention a couple of things that's, that we try to emphasize when we study the book of Genesis. Life in Eden is quite different than you and I have any capacity to imagine because Adam walked with God, he was clothed with light, he was in a dimensionality that none of us have any concept of. Prior to sin and prior to the curse, the whole situation is so different that there's no reasonable way to communicate it to us. Also, even after the fall, from Adam through Noah, we have a whole different lifestyle. People lived for hundreds of years. Noah built this uh, barge in his driveway for 120 years. You can imagine what the neighbors thought. Now, what's interesting about the sons of God and the daughters of men thing is that that idea is embodied in the Greek mythology. Now, we all know what we all run into from time, depending on how interested you are in the classics, you have had varying degrees of exposure to the so-called demigods, right? And... Um, one of the most interesting guys are the so-called titans. You've heard that we use the term titan, usually meaning large, right? Like a missile or something. Titans are partly heavenly, partly earthly in their origin. They are reputed in Greek mythology to have rebelled against their father Uranus, king of heaven. And after a prolonged contest, they were finally defeated by Zeus. And they were thrown into a prison called Tartarus. Now, something kind of interesting, Titan is the Greek term that the Chaldean term is Shaitan, which is the Chaldean for the Hebrew Satan. So even in the mythology and legends of our classical, you know, cultural roots, we have veiled remembrances of a time when some strange things are going on on the earth before the flood, and were at least in part caused for the flood. Why? Satan's strategy again. How is man going to be delivered by the seed of the woman? What's his shot at this? To contaminate the human race so there are no pure humans left to be heir to the title deed. So in Revelation chapter 5, when there's one in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written within and without and on the backside sealed with seven seals, and no man in heaven was found worthy to open the book. Had to be a man, had to be an heir to Adam. Suppose there were no pure heirs to Adam. John says, I sobbed convulsively because no man was found able. And the elder said to me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. Open the book. He turned and he saw the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ had to be man. Now, it's really interesting when you study the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and in Luke. You have two genealogies. Luke goes from Adam because he's a, he's a physician. He goes from Adam all the way through to David, and down from David through Mary. Matthew being a Levi, 
who's interested as the son of Abraham. He starts with Abraham, goes down through David, through Solomon, the royal line, all the way down to Joseph, who has the legal title to the throne of David. But back in Jeconiah's day, and we co I won't cover this all in detail, but some of you know that in Jeconiah's day, who was in the royal line, God cursed the royal line, put a blood curse on Jeconiah and all his descendants. And I have the view from what I know about Scripture that in that day in the councils of Satan there was rejoicing. He thought, aha, now he got him. Because there's a blood line, there's a blood curse on the royal line. And when we get down to Jesus Christ, we find that he is the legal son of, but not the flesh son of Joseph who carries that blood curse. But when you study the genealogies carefully, you discover when they get to David, they take a detour. Matthews goes down the legal line that has heir to the throne. The Luke goes down the through Nathan, another son of David, to Mary. So Jesus Christ was of the house and lineage of David, but in a way that makes him legally entitled, but not subject to the blood curse. So when again and again, as you study the scripture, you find Satan plotting and God outsmarting every step of the way. But the more you study the scripture, the more you become fascinated with God's methodology and how, how clever he is. But you also recognize that every detail fits into a plan. Every name, every number, every detail of these 66 books is woven tightly by a super engineer. And it's, it's, just, it's just incredible. And that, that, I find that exciting. Okay, I, uh, we might, uh, I did, let's, let's take a look at Second Peter. I think we did look at that already, but I want to make sure you're... Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell... Now, that's kind of strange, because Satan has all kinds of fallen angels doing all kinds of things, but they're not bound. And these angels did something very... They broke some deeper rules, and so got, they got cast down to Tartarus. And it's interesting that the same Greek word is used there as occurs in the literature that deals with the titans and all of mythology. Same word. And delivered them into the chains of darkness to be served in judgment. Notice what Peter goes on. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, hang, uh, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And, and then it goes on with Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., etc. So clearly, what Peter is talking about is something that is familiar to his readers, as familiar as the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. Peter is presuming that his readers are familiar with this. Um, when we get to Jude, Jude does the same thing, and in fact, and I want to get into next time's subject, but if we look at um, verse 7, we're going to see even a Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves to fornication going after strange flesh. We're going to talk about the sin, the, the, the sin and, the, and the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah next time. But what, if you read Jude, the tone of it, in verse 5, he talks about Israel. Verse 6, he talks about the angels that kept not their first estate but left their own habitation and so forth. And then even as Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. The implication from the language, that Jude, the, the thrust of Jude, uh, Jude's argument, is that the angels did the same thing that they did in Sodom and Gomorrah, namely unnatural sexual perversion. It isn't just that they're fornicating, just having, you know, sex outside of marriage. That isn't the only issue. Sodom and Gomorrah gives rise to all kinds of other things. We'll talk about that next time. But the point is, the, th the way the language is constructed, the implication is that is the nature of the sin of the angels in verse 6. 
Follow what I'm saying? And this doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just telling you why I view it so aggressively. I want to, on one hand, let you recognize that there are good scholars that take, would take great exception to what I'm presenting here. And they argue the Seth uh, and, you know, kind of idea. But uh, I frankly, this is one of those places where I just really uh, feel personally that the, if you take the Scripture straight, in a straightforward manner, it's quite clear uh, what it says. Now, you may wonder, okay, Chuck, that's interesting. It's a little bizarre. It's kind of fun, but it's, uh, what's that got to do with us? Well, several things. At this point, let's summarize lessons, practical lessons for you and I. Well, the first thing is that the Scripture warns against meddling with the spirit world in any way. And I, I uh, did not take the time to really list all of that uh, in detail. In Deuteronomy, all through the Torah, all through the Old Testament, and certainly in the New, we are admonished to flee occultic things of all shapes and sizes. And by the way, I don't know how many of you saw the movie The Exorcist. Anybody see that movie? I'm not trying to recommend the movie, but there's something interesting. If you recall that entire, oh, well, first of all, you should probably know William Blatty based that upon a collection of several case studies amalgamated into a novel. So there's much in the movie that is documentary, documentarily sound. It all starts, though, with what? A Ouija board. A little party game. That's known in the trade as an entry. Do you know what other entries are? Astrology. I want to ask you, how many of you read the astrology col columns in the paper just for fun, because it's kind of cute? Watch out. These subtle, innocent little things can lead to an entanglement with the spirit world, an involvement that grows and gets addictive and deepens, whose end point is your destruction. Now, there are many superstitions and such that people had throughout the ages that the Bible doesn't even bother to comment on. These things are not dangerous because they're stupid or because they're just ignorant or what have you. They are malevolent. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>